Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 4 and 5, as you know, this whole month of December. This will be the source of our meditations. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. We read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this month we are giving ourselves over to the wonderful task of finishing a simple sentence together with the help of the Apostle Paul. That sentence being, Christmas is... And last week we saw that Christmas is, first of all, history's climax. It took place in the fullness of time. This expression of the fullness of time speaks of several things, among which are Jewish expectation, divine decree, history as Christ-centered, God's covenantal faithfulness, and new beginnings. In short, human history was made for the fullness of time. Christmas, as we said, was the first phase of this historic climax. There's much more to come yet when the Lord Jesus returns, but the fullness of time is already here. It has come. And we ended our meditations last week, if you will remember, by asking ourselves a question. And the question was this, if the fullness of time is the history, is the climax of history, then what did the fullness of time bring? What did the fullness of time bring? What made it the fullness of time? In other words, what was the substance of the fullness of time? And we looked at prophet Isaiah who gave us a preview answer. We read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, what could be said to be the heart of Israel's prayer. In its original context, this prayer was about the destruction of Israel's enemies. Isaiah is, in a way, lamenting that God's intervention did not come at the time they had expected. But in that verse, a request was made to God in which the longings of Israel are fully exposed for us to see. The prayer goes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. And what? Come down. Consider the following question with me as we enter into the second section of our passage. What would it mean, not only for Israel, but the whole world, what would it mean for that prayer to be answered? What would it mean for all of human history in its entirety for God to tear the heavens open and do what? Come down. I can tell you what it would mean. If God answered that prayer, it would mean the fullness of time. Can you think of a greater event in all of human history than God tearing the heavens open and coming down? Can you think of anything else that would mark the fullness of time? Would this suffice to meet all of the expectations of the Jews for God to come down? 
I most definitely think so. So let us return to our question. If Christmas came in the fullness of time, bringing with it the very climax of all of history, then what did it bring? Well, it brought the answer to Isaiah's prayer. The God who is above the heavens tore the heavens open and he did come down. I have put it like this in your sermon notes, in the sermon title. Christmas is the climax of history because Christmas is God's visitation. God's visitation. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. I admit that choosing the word visitation was a risky move. We don't use that word very often, and when we do, it feels rather light. To pay someone a visit, for instance, doesn't seem like a very consequential thing to do, although it can be good. But I suppose the word visitation can take on a greater meaning depending on the context. When it is placed within the context of a funeral, for example, the word visitation takes another meaning. It becomes weightier. The time of visitation is when you offer comfort to the bereaved by being present. In, the case, in that case of a funeral, visitation is about showing up for the purpose of sympathy. When placed in the context of great loss, a visitation can be highly, highly significant. And that's Christmas. That's Christmas. God's visitation, precisely within the context of great loss, because Christmas is about God visiting his people for the purpose of bringing consolation. But this is nothing new. There's a very clear Old Testament background to this idea of God visiting his people in times of great distress. This morning, I will simply introduce the idea, and I hope to develop it a bit more on December 24th, Lord willing. So where do we begin? Do you have your Bibles with you? Thank you, Kevin. You have your Bible with you. Great. (laughs) I'll be praying for the rest of you. Let's open our Bibles. Join me as we open our Bibles to the last chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. What we find here is the story of Joseph's death. Having been sold as a slave by his brothers and having been lifted out of his misery by God, he was placed in a position of great authority in Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh himself. In this sense, Joseph is a Christ-like figure who goes from being humiliated by sitting in prison to being exalted by sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. But after a very eventful life and many ups and downs, Joseph comes to the end of his life. Death is rapidly approaching. Now, Joseph is in Egypt. Pharaoh is his friend. Jacob, his father, has already passed. He is now 110 years old, and right before breathing his last, Joseph speaks to his brothers and tells them the words that are found in verse 24 of Genesis 50. Follow along as I read them. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will what? Visit you. God will pay you a visit and bring you up out of this land. What land? Egypt. To the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely what? Visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. What are we to make of this divine visit spoken of by Joseph? How do we understand it? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. Turn now in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. This is the great chapter on faith. Through several examples, the writer shows us what faith looks like in practical ways. And when we come to chapter 22 of Hebrews 11, we reach Joseph once again, and we are told exactly what he meant by those words he spoke to his brothers in Genesis 15. Hebrews 11:22 says that by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of what? The what? The exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Joseph, in Genesis 50, spoke prophetically about the coming exodus. Joseph knew that a time of great distress was coming upon the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How in the world did he know? Well, God had already told Abraham back in Genesis 15, 13, these words. Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, meaning Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for how many years? 400 years. Likely through oral tradition, Joseph knew about the bleak future of his people in Egypt. Things were about to change. He understood that Egypt, the land that had welcomed and prospered him, would soon become a land of cruel and long captivity for Israel. And it is in that very context, within that captivity in mind, that Joseph tells his brothers, God will visit you. What was Joseph's thinking about? A time of great distress was coming. But God will visit you. So what does the context reveal? Here, if you're following the notes... It reveals that for Joseph, divine visitation meant deliverance from great distress, accompanied by judgment on God's enemy. enemies. I'm going to say that again. For Joseph, divine visitation meant deliverance from great distress accompanied by judgment on God's enemies. And that's exactly what the Exodus is, is it not? God came, visited them. What did it mean? Deliverance for Israel, judgment on Egypt. Divine visitation meant restoration, freedom, a new beginning. Therefore, embedded in the idea of divine visitation is the reality of deliverance. God will visit you, Joseph said, and when he does, it will bring freedom and consolation. And so what happened When the divine visitation finally came after 400 years, what happened? Here's what happened. God sent forth his servant 
Moses. And when Moses showed up, deliverance came with him. Now, the Exodus, of course, how important is it? Fairly important? No, it is the central event in all of Israel's life. It was the event that established the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the uniquely called people of God. The Exodus, listen to this, the Exodus was the definitive launching of a new quality of existence for all of the people of Israel. There's something new. Now they were fully and visibly set apart by God and for God from all the nations of the world. Therefore, that visitation spoken of by Joseph was truly climactic. It changed everything for the people of Israel. It was a visitation that made the difference between slavery and freedom, sadness and joy, darkness and light, death and life. And so here we are. We find ourselves in the book of Genesis and Exodus, thousands of years before the first Christmas. How in the world do we now draw a line between this and our passage from Galatians and our meditations for Christmas? We need to build some kind of bridge, don't we? Let us build one with the help of another old man who, like Joseph, was also coming to the end of his life. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. This old man that is going to help us build a bridge was a priest, I'm sorry, priest of the division of Abijah, married to a descendant of Aaron named Elizabeth. His name is Zechariah. He will help us build a bridge between Joseph's words to his brothers and the events of the first Christmas, with the Apostle Paul looming very large in the background, of course. Why Zechariah? Zechariah was given a promise in a rather unique way. You know the story. An angel named Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and told him that he and Elizabeth would have a son, which came as a surprise, given the fact that both were advanced in years, just like Abraham and Sarah had been when they were promised Isaac. Zechariah and Elizabeth eventually named their soon-to-be-born son, what? John, whom we also know as John the Baptist. A few months after this announcement, the birth of Jesus was also announced to Mary, also by the angel Gabriel. Two births, supernaturally announced. Zechariah is aware of both, and his mind is struck with awe and wonder. How would you feel if that happened to you? Lots to think about, right? So as Zechariah pondered what was happening, trying to wrap his mind around these two highly consequential birds, both of John and Jesus, he uttered a prophecy which begins in verse 68 of Luke chapter 1. Read along as we get a glimpse into Zechariah's mind and build this bridge between Joseph's words and Christmas. Here we go, verse 68. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has what? Visited. Ooh, there's the word again. He has visited and redeemed his people. Go down to verse 76. 
Speaking to John, Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall what? Visit us from on high. There it is. The bridge. Christmas is God's visitation. And if it is God's visitation, then it comes with both judgment and deliverance. So Zechariah finishes his prophecy saying in verse 79 that God has visited his people to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of Peace. The only difference between Joseph's words and Christmas is that during the Exodus, God sent forth his servant Moses, while in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. As in a funeral, where we have visitation to offer comfort to the bereaved, so too, in that first Christmas night, God visited the world to bring consolation to the lost. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, we have already established that for a faithful Jew like Zechariah, in and through the coming of the Messiah, God was visiting his people with all its far-reaching implications, as in a new exodus. But the question remains to be addressed, and it is this. If you're following the notes, here's the question. What does, what does Zechariah's understanding of the visitation of God reveal about the nature of the Son of God? What does Zechariah's understanding of the visitation of God reveal about the nature of the Son of God? Now, in what follows, I am not implying that Zechariah himself or most of the Jews would have understood things just like we do. I'm not trying to impose things on their understanding. Remember that this was still a transitional period and much revelation was still to come. Their understanding in that sense was limited compared to our understanding. So the points that follow in your notes come as a result of greater revelation, of course, given later on, especially through the Apostle Paul. And so I am not saying that Zechariah would have seen all of the following points, but I believe that a few decades later, Paul did see all these things. And this becomes very clear in our passage, which was written by Paul. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. I will give you four truths that we can learn about the nature of the Son of God as revealed in Christmas. Number one, God's visitation in Christmas reveals the pre-temporal existence of the Son. The pre-temporal existence of the Son at the risk of sounding very, very obvious beyond repair, let me state clearly that you cannot send someone forth if that someone doesn't exist already. Easy enough? 
For instance, I'm going to give you some examples. Abraham was sent forth to Canaan from the land of Ur, right? Moses was sent forth to Egypt from the land of Midian. In both cases, the sending forth assumes prior what? Existence, right? This is so difficult, right? Assumes prior existence. And in both cases, Abraham and Moses, their prior existence is within the confines of time and space, from one moment and one geographical location to the next. Are you following me? Right. The sending forth of both Abraham and Moses assumes temporality and physicality. When it comes to Christmas, however, the sending forth of God's Son is unlike that of Abraham and Moses because Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. In other words, when the Son of God was sent forth, there was no prior timing, nor was their geographical location being described. Why? Because the timing is his birth, and his physical location is the womb of Mary, which leads us to the question, where was he sent from? The answer is inescapable, right? He was sent from a pretemporal existence. The son already was prior to his conception. As Jesus himself would later on tell the Pharisees in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, what? I am. That's pretty far back. Therefore, God sent forth his son because the son is a pretemporal being whose mode of existence prior to his incarnational birth was outside the bounds of time and space. He was sent forth indicating that his incarnation, listen, his incarnation was the assumption of his humanity rather than the beginning of his existence. That's the first thing we learn about the nature of the son. What else do we learn about the nature of the Son during Christmas and from Paul? Here's the second thing. God's visitation in Christmas reveals the eternal sonship of Jesus. Not only is the Son the pretemporal being, but this also means that he has always been the Son of God. Even prior to his conception and birth as one Theologian Herman Ritherbaugh said, quote, God sent his son, listen, and this sending does not create sonship, but presupposes it. Did you get that? God sent for his son, and this sending does not create the sonship, but presupposes it. We are speaking here against a heresy known as adoptionism. How many of you have heard of adoptionism, a Christological heresy? A few of you. Johnny, I knew you would. Adoptionism, in which the belief is sustained that Jesus became God's son at the moment of his birth, but that he wasn't the son of God prior to his birth. This is clearly denied by Paul. All we have to do is to ask a very simple question of our text. Very simple question. Whom did God send forth? You know the answer? His son. Therefore, he was God's son prior to him being sent. 
Jesus did not become the Son. He always was the Son, eternally so. But I want you to do an exercise with me. Turn to Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says something interesting, and I want us to deal with this language a little bit because I am making here the claim that God sent forth his Son and that therefore he was the Son eternally. Eternally in that relationship to God as Father and Son. Well, then what do we do with Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, in which we read what God says about the Messiah? This is an intra-Trinitarian conversation between the God and the Messiah. And it says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have what? Begotten you. Begotten you. That sounds more like the Messiah became God's son, doesn't it? It sounds like the sonship of Jesus began at a certain point in time. What are we to make of this? Well, the Apostle Paul, along with some other New Testament writers, explains that what this language of begetting in the Old Testament actually means. It has nothing to do with Jesus becoming God's son at some point in time as if he was not the son in eternity. The begetting is rather a reference to his resurrection from the dead as a human being. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, we read that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Therefore, the begetting is not speaking of Jesus becoming God's Son in his incarnation, but of Jesus confirming his eternal divine sonship through his resurrection as a full human being. Acts 13.33 presents the exact same truth if you want to read it later on uh, on your own. So now we have learned two marvelous truths about the nature of the Son. First, he is a pre-temporal being who has existed prior to his conception and birth. Second, he is the eternal Son of God now in human flesh. What else do we learn about the nature of God's Son? Here's number three. God's visitation in Christmas reveals the personal distinction between Father and Son. Notice what Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 doesn't say. It doesn't say that God sent forth himself. Does it? Does it? You can say no. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say God sent forth himself. It says God sent forth his son. What is clear here is the distinction between the two. The father is not the son, neither is the son the father. This speaks against the heresy known as modalism. This heresy insists that the father, the son, and the spirit are all different modes or manifestations of the same one person and, and thus rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity. But this is not the case at all. How can the Father send forth the Son if the Father and the Son are the exact same person? Modalism virtually destroys any meaning to what Paul is seeking to convey in Galatians 4 and any of other verse that speaks of God sending forth His Son, like John 3.16. The Father can send forth the Son precisely because the Father is not what? Or whom? He's not the Son. As in John chapter 1, verse 1, the word was with God. 
But this presents a dilemma, doesn't it? If the Son is not the same person as the Father, in other words, if God sent forth His Son, not Himself, how can Zechariah equate the coming of the Messiah with God's own visitation? How can Zechariah say that God has visited them if the Son is not the Father? That question almost forces us into our next consideration in your notes. God's visitation in Christmas reveals the essential equality between Father and Son. You see, it's, it's like an inescapable thing. They're distinct, yet they're equal in essence. One of the most interesting developments within first century Christianity was their understanding an application of the divine title kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord. Lord. Why is that interesting? For two primary reasons. First, by the time of Jesus and the apostles, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament had been translated into Greek. This translation was known as the Septuagint. And in that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word used to translate the covenant name of God, which is what? Yahweh. Yahweh. In that Greek translation, the Greek used, word used was kurios. Kurios. And this is interesting. Soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus started to use that same word. Kurios to refer to Jesus, which was a shocking move. For instance, let me prove this to you. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25, Yahweh himself says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee will bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Sound familiar? That's Yahweh speaking. Isaiah 45, verse 25. Every knee will bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. If it sounds familiar, it's because Paul, without any hint of hesitation, he took those words and applied them directly to Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 11, 10 and 11, we read that at the name of Jesus, every knee should what? Bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is kurios, the Greek translation of Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Now, to what extent this idea was clear in the Old Testament Jewish mind, I'm not sure. But for Paul and the early Christians, it was thoroughly clear. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Hence, Zechariah's words. With the coming of the Messiah, Yahweh himself had visited his people. Therefore, and because of this essential equality between father and son, in Jesus Isaiah's prayer was answered definitively. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come 
down. This is what God did in Jesus. God tore the heavens open and came down. Now, I want to show you one more passage. Turn to Mark chapter 1 and consider with me what happened during the baptism of Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. Mark chapter 1. Now, remember Isaiah 64 verse 1. What is Isaiah asking? God, tear the heavens open and come down. This is what happened according to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is what took place. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw what? The heavens being torn open. I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of symbolism in those words. Why? Why were the heavens torn open? Oh, because that man being baptized was God's visitation. Jesus' birth is the entrance of God's very presence into the world, like never before. In fact, we could say this, Jesus is heaven on earth. In fact, you know what the purpose of the temple was in the Old Testament? In the Jewish mind, you know what the purpose, the main purpose of the temple was? To symbolize what? The union between heaven and earth. And then Jesus shows up and he says what? Something better than the temple is here. Jesus is heaven on earth. Hence the song of the angels who at the sight of Jesus, wrapped in human flesh, said glory to God where? in the highest, and on earth, peace. Jesus is bringing both together. With the coming of the Son of God, heaven itself had come down to meet earth, and the restoration of all things officially began. The angels knew it. They just didn't have more words for it. Yes, his death and resurrection came later on, and he had both to die and rise again to bring about redemption. But he could not have done either without the first Christmas. And all of this leads us to our last question in your notes, which is also a preview question as we begin to think of what comes next. Let me see if I can try to whet your appetite here for next Sunday. How? Did the Messiah, how did the Messiah bring about God's visitation? The answer is basically this. God visited his people by sending his son in the most unexpected way possible. As someone wrote, quote, Jesus redefined the very concept of messiahship. He blew them all away. Jesus delivered what had been promised both to Eve in the garden and to Abraham, but not in the way the Jews had expected. Why? Well, because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. How? Born of a woman. Born under the law. I hope you will be here next week as we explore those astonishing words together. In the meantime, let us pray and give thanks.
Father, we thank you. For in the fullness of time, you did send forth your Son. And so here we are, as mere mortals, with the help of your Spirit, seeking to understand what this means. Help us, Lord, to never lose the awe and wonder at the thought that you have visited us in the person of your Son. And help us to spend both this life and all of eternity giving you thanks and glory and praise for what this actually means. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.